Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll talk with someone with the annual Arnold Sports Festival, which hits Columbus in just a few days. Daniel Barnett has a segment about workplace safety. In about 20 minutes, courtesy of 10TV, Scott Light will have a roundtable discussion about Ohio's death penalty and the presidential race. His guests include Matt Borges, former chair of the Ohio Republican Party, and State Representative Thomas West, a Democrat from Canton. And I'll wrap up the hour with Dwayne Casares. He's the CEO of Directions for Youth and Families. First up on Columbus Perspective, joining me on the phone, Brent Lalonde, who is the communications director for the Arnold Sports Festival. How are you? Doing great today, Dave. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for talking to us. Uh, This festival is uh, just mind-boggling, the way that it started and the way that it continues. Yeah, it started as just a professional men's bodybuilding competition back in 1989 uh, through a partnership with Jim Lormer, who is a Worthington, Ohio businessman, and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, In the 1990s, they began to add uh, different events, martial arts, fencing, uh, cheerleading, that sort of thing. Um, Continue to do that every year for the last 32 years to the point where in uh, 2020 we will have more than 85 different sports and events uh, featuring some 22,000 athletes from 80 different nations. So it has turned into the largest multi-sport festival of its kind in the world. I've seen some quotes from you where you have some eye-opening things to say comparing this to the Olympics in some ways. Yeah, so if you look at just the number of athletes, uh, the Summer Olympics will get about 10,000 athletes. Uh, We get about 22,000 athletes. Ours is just over four days. Obviously, the caliber of those athletes is a little bit different, but from a a scope, uh, we have about twice as many athletes as, as the Summer Olympics. So this festival, especially compared to the way it is now, it was really more narrowly focused when it first started, right? It came out of a professional bodybuilding competition between um, uh, our Jim Lorimer and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Arnold first came to Columbus to compete uh, as a bodybuilder in 1970, uh, met Jim, and they struck off, struck up a friendship. Uh, when Arnold retired from competing uh, in 1975, he came back to Columbus, uh, and Jim and Arnold went into into partnership, and they started promoting other events uh, between 1976 and 1986. They did the Mr. Olympia competition here in Columbus six times in addition to some other things. But then they decided to put their on their own competition um, and when they did that in 1989, they created the Arnold Classic, and it has just grown a little bit every year uh, with all the different events from powerlifting, weightlifting, strongman. I mentioned some of the some of the youth events, cheerleading, gymnastics, martial arts, fencing, all these competitions, and it has just kind of grown um, into this thing that nobody would have, would have expected uh, 32 years ago. So this is going on Thursday through Sunday at the Greater Columbus Convention Center. What sort of advice would you give to folks who go? If you've not been, go to our website at arnoldsportsfestival.com. Take a look at everything going on. There's, it, it, it's such an overwhelming event. You want to make a plan uh, to make sure you see what, um, see what you want to see. There's really two uh, key locations. Uh, the Greater Columbus Convention Center is where we have our big Arnold Fitness Expo with all the booths. There's about 1,000 different booths. Most of our main competitions are in the convention center. 
whether it be the professional amateur bodybuilding, the the pro strongman, the Arnold Strongman Classic, which is the same guy you see on TV for World's Strongest Man. That's probably one of the most popular things we have. But beyond that, we have arm wrestling and powerlifting and weightlifting and uh, just a long, long list of long, long list of events. You can get into the convention center uh, for a ticket for twenty bucks in advance or twenty five at the door, and you can spend three days just inside the convention center. Um, checking it all out. In addition to that, we have uh, a lot of events up at the Ohio Expo Center, the state fairgrounds, where five or six years ago we created a second expo called the Arnold Sports World Kids and Teens Expo, gener- uh, geared more towards families. Uh, kids uh, kids throughout the weekend, 14 and under, are, 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 are free. Uh, but up there, kids can check out and try fencing. They can try gymnastics. They can try cheerleading. They can try football, basketball, lacrosse, table tennis, all those sort of sports. I mean, kind of introduce them to, to health and fitness. Um, and at the same time, at the fairgrounds is where we have our cheerleading competition, 3,000 cheerleaders, 4,000 gymnasts, baton twirling, um, et cetera. So uh, two key locations, and then we have some other things throughout the city as well. But uh, really, it's focused at the convention center and at the Ohio Expo Center. Talking with Brent Lalonde, he's communications director for the Arnold Sports Festival starting on Thursday. You know, I think a lot of people over the years, especially early on, thought that Arnold Schwarzenegger would kind of uh, eventually just simply be lending his name to this thing and then you wouldn't see him anymore. But that certainly has not been the case. That is not. He has been to the event every year for all, for all 31 years. He will be here again in uh, next week. Uh, he will come in town on Thursday. We'll go to most, if not all the events on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Uh, so he's a uh, he's a big component of what we do. He, uh, he he appears at many of our events, does a lot of photos and autographs with the fans. So this is really an opportunity for him to give back to that health and fitness community, um, and he really enjoys coming into town. And not only has he committed to coming to Columbus every year, but back in nineteen, I'm sorry, back in 2011, we decided that we. We expanded the concept, uh, and, and we now do these same Arnold Sports Festivals in Australia, South America, Spain, and South Africa. So we're with him five times throughout the year doing the same thing. That's amazing. Are there people who have never been to the event who might have kind of a, a misread on what it is or, you know, just have the, the wrong idea of what goes on there? Yeah, we, uh, we, we, we definitely suffer from the acorn effect. People think it's a bodybuilding show. And there is a lot of our uh, of our events that is rooted in that those events in that culture and but it is so much more than that we have we have twenty two thousand athletes competing on the weekend and less than a thousand are from the bodybuilding world um, so we have it is you if if we have youth dance sport we have fencing, foosball, futsal. There's just a wide uh, variety of events. If you go out to the Expo Center, you can watch competitions in cup stacking, speed cubing, Rubik's Cube, that sort of thing. So it is just, if you can if, if you can name the sport, the chances are we've had it or, or, we, or, or we have it this year if we don't. Um, so, for example, this year we're always trying to find new events, and we have a competition called Medieval Fighting where they guys put on this armor and get these big axes and hammers and they just go at it it's it's, this legitimate (laughs) medieval fighting competition that we saw for the first time down in australia so those sorts of things that you would never even dream about seeing you can see um under one roof here in columbus just over three days what's the future of the event brent is it it just always going to continue or what that is our plan um 
the event has been in Columbus for 32 years. Uh, we recently signed another contract with the convention center, so we're definitely going to be around for a few more years. Uh, Arnold is very, very committed to Columbus, Ohio. Uh, Bob Lorimer, who is the son of our founder, Jim Lorimer, is now our, our president. Uh, so our plan is to continue to grow bigger and better every year. It's outstanding. Final thoughts on this as it, as it starts up on Thursday and runs through Sunday. What do you want the community to know about it? Uh, just come, if you've not been there, just come out and check it out. It is a, it is a huge community festival. It has a huge impact on the city. Um, and just know that there is something there for everyone. So no matter what you're looking, to, looking for, um, you're going to find it at, at our event. Come down. Buy, buy, buy one of those daily expo tickets for, for 20 bucks in advance or 25 bucks at the door and just, just go explore. And um, I am sure, I guarantee that you will, um, you'll be amazed at, 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 the, at the variety of events, the variety of people um, that you will see in Columbus next week. Okay. And Brent, what's the website again? It is arnoldsportsfestival.com. Go on there and you'll find schedules and information about tickets and parking and all that information that you need to have a good experience. All right, outstanding. Uh, Brent Lalonde, uh, Communications Director, Arnold Sports Festival. Good luck with it. Thanks for talking to us. Thank you very much for having, us, having me on. Much appreciated. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. Have you ever experienced a wish come true? For a child battling a critical illness, a wish come true can be a turning point. One song, one dance, one game, one adventure, one moment changes everything. Make-A-Wish needs your support to grant the wish of every eligible child. Visit wish.org now to help grant more life-changing wishes. Together, we can transform lives one wish at a time. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Thanks for staying tuned to Columbus Perspective. I'm Daniel Barnett. I have on the line Lorraine Martin. Lorraine is the CEO of the National Safety Council. And we're going to be talking today about something that I think most people are aware of, but probably think won't happen to them, and that's workplace accidents. Lorraine, thank you so much for joining me today on Columbus Perspective. Good morning, Daniel. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm very good. I'm glad to hear it. Well, let's go ahead, Lorraine, and and start with a jumping off point. Uh, How common are workplace injuries and workplace fatalities throughout the United States? Um, Great question. In in our country today, so let me start up there. Um, In 2018, we had 5,250 total worker-related deaths. And that's, that's a startling number when you think about all of the families that didn't have a loved one come home at night um, as a result of them, you know, doing what they needed to do to support themselves. Uh, that is the highest number we've had since around 2008. So things are starting to creep back up for us. We've made really amazing progress in our nation over the last 100 years of making workplaces safe, but things have started to turn in the other direction. I will note for you, though, in Ohio, 
between 2018 and 2017, we actually had about a 9% decrease from worker fatalities. So there's some really good work going on across the industries in Ohio, something that we need to make sure uh, maintains um, and continues in that right direction. But as a whole in our nation, um, we actually are headed in the wrong direction, although we've made really good progress over the last hundred years. Follow-up question would be, what accounts for those trends, both the worsening trend on the national level and the improving trend in the Ohio uh, level? You know, a lot of what has been happening in, in industries is the use of technology to really address some of the, the highest hazards. Um, and so Ohio and the industries across there, um, looking at their, their highest fatalities, looking at their hazards in their workplace, and then doing something about them. We at the National Safety Council have some 15,000-plus companies that come together to look at those issues, share best practices, and then understand what they can do for their workers. And clearly in Ohio, the industry has been taking uh, attention and taking action. Some of the things that, that people have been doing are looking at the highest hazard areas. And the highest hazard areas for us right now are things like fall from heights, um, workplace violence, unfortunately, and then cases where employees are actually in repairing or maintaining equipment and they actually get either tangled up or actually struck by it. So those areas are where we need to look both nationally and then, of course, in Ohio uh, to understand where we can put procedures, processes, and for this conversation, technology in place to help us. And you sort of touched on this, but what sorts of industries are seeing the highest levels of workplace fatalities? Yeah, construction is always it been and is still an area of the highest um, fatalities for us in our nation. I will tell you that forestry and some of that work is also one of the places it doesn't have as many numbers when you do count, but it's a very high risk when you look at the rate in forestry, tree cutting, all of that kind of operation. So those are two of the areas that we look at first and foremost. Construction is always at the top of the list. When a workplace fatality happens, what's the process by which OSHA, I believe, investigates it? And then what kind of outcomes are there? Are they criminal outcomes? Are they fines? You know, it really depends on what the situation was and what the investigation result, results in uh, according to what happened. Sometimes there is things that the company could and should have done, and those are the places where, you know, you really want to get on it and make sure that never happens again, mistake-proof your systems. Um, and in, in some cases, OSHA does become involved depending on what it is. But more importantly, and when we work with companies uh, across their entire enterprises, it's really about building, first and foremost, a safety culture and a safety environment and a safety system so that not only the company but every employee and even the contractors that come on your site, they all know what's expected and they all know how to make sure that they're looking out for hazards before they even occur. So it's really important to understand when something happens, what it was, so you can build it out of your environment. But more importantly, it's about having uh, a workplace culture that expects people to be able to do their job safely and looks out for each other during the during the workday. So Lorraine, you're the CEO of the National Safety Council, and I know that your organization just released a new report about safety technology and, and dealing with your uh, work to zero initiative. Can you tell us a little bit about the findings of that report and, and about the work to zero initiative? Yeah, thank you. So work to zero is where we have challenged ourselves and the companies that um, are part of our coalition to say we expect that people should be able to go to work and come home safely every day. Um, that is that is something that uh, as a nation we know we can make happen and we should expect of all of our 
organization. So we embarked on a project to look at the highest hazards um, across U.S. industries today, sort of catalog those, talk to safety experts, and then also catalog all of the new promising and evolving technologies in about 18 different categories um, that could apply to those hazards, that could reduce those hazards. And it went all the way from things like AI, artificial intelligence, to uh, virtual reality, to wearable technologies, both for sensing in the environment and some wearables that actually make your arms stronger, you know, exoskeletons, to drones, to all kinds of things that we're using today for a lot of applications, sometimes efficiency or productivity, and we challenged ourselves to say, how do you take those same technologies and look at them through the lens of safety so that we can reduce hazards in the workplace? And there's some really exciting work that's already going on across industry. And a lot of times uh, what we need to do is make sure that we're sharing that information, extending that uh, application of technology, piloting in areas um, so that we can really get the biggest bang across all um, those high hazard areas like we just talked about and make sure that we're um, bringing that safety component to the technology side. This might be an obvious question, but what are some lower tech solutions that are being implemented or being suggested for uh, employees and employers when it comes to workplace safety? Yeah, it, you know, a lot of technology we have today, we can think of as lower technology, but it is literally life-saving. Things like aerial lifts when people need to get to heights, because falling from heights is the number one hazard in the workplace um, uh, through our study, and in ladders actually are not a great way to get human beings to a lot, to a, a position off the ground. And there are a lot of lift technologies and ways to secure yourself, to uh, um, uh, sort of tag yourself into the, the equipment, so you are not going to fall. Um, and those technologies are with us today. They're not used in all industries. They're not used in all environments. Sometimes you have to tailor them to be able to work. Um, in the in the industry that you're looking for, but those are really high payoff to make sure that people don't fall from heights. Um, you also can look at different kinds of harnesses to being strapped in and making sure if you did fall that it's not going to be this jerk when you when you when you do fall and when your, your cable kind of you know gets to its limits, but you have some other kinds of flexibility and um, uh, technology that enables that to be a less violent situation. So there are technologies and applications of them just really at our fingertips, whether it's, as I mentioned, lifts, um, other things like uh, light screens. So you think of a light as a beam that can go across a surface. And if a human interrupts that, that, you know, we have lots of sensors that know that that light has been interrupted. You can use that technology that's not, you know, too gee whiz. You can put it in front of some machinery that if you walked into could put you at hazard or perhaps it could strike you. And at the minute that you cross that light barrier, the machine just shuts off. And you might think of that as low tech, you might think of it as high tech. It's available today and it can be hugely life-saving. So I know the, the Work to Zero initiative, the goal would be to eliminate workplace fatalities uh, in our lifetime. Um, how attainable is that goal? Well, we talked about what it is nationally right now, around 5,000 individuals, and any one of those is too many. We've taken it from 100,000 to 5,000. It's that last piece that we have to address and really look at across some of these highest hazard areas. It's absolutely the only goal that we should set for ourselves, that we should have zero fatalities in the workplace. If we don't set it at that goal, then we're not going to reach it. And um, we do think that that's realizable. We think that's the 
um, the expectation that we should have for every human being that goes to work to move our country forward, to support their family, um, and the technologies that are out there, the ingenuity that's in our workplace today and within our companies, uh, we do expect that uh, we can have that goal, and I'd love to be alive when that occurs. So folks are interested in learning more about the National Safety Council's new report, Safety Technology 2020. Is there a place where the public can go and look at it? Absolutely. We have a website, and I'll give it to you here. It's nsc.org, O-R-G, forward slash work to zero, one word, work to zero. Once again, I've been speaking with Lorraine Martin, CEO of the National Safety Council. Lorraine, thank you so much for speaking with me today about workplace safety and the work you're doing to help people stay safe in the workplace. Thank you, Daniel. If you love them enough to turn off your music and pretend like their music is your music. Ah, this is mommy's jam. Then surely you'll check NHTSA.gov slash the right seat to make sure they're in the right car seat. Let's play it again. Check today at NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Act Council. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of 10TV, here is Scott Light from his Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10TV. Good morning to you. Thanks for joining us here on Face the State. I'm Scott Light. Let me introduce you to these folks here at the table. Great group of guests this morning, including State Representative Thomas West, a Democrat from the 49th District. Before serving in government, he was a mental health professional for 25 years. Joe Ingalls is back with us. Veteran journalist, debate moderator, reporter, producer, you name it, she does it for the State House News Bureau. Matt Borges is back at the table. We welcome him. He has been in politics and campaigns for decades. He is now a partner at 17 Consulting. And Hannah Halbert is back at the table as well. We want to congratulate her because she has recently been named Executive Director of Policy Matters Ohio. Welcome all. It's good to have you here. Let's begin this week. A Columbus jury deliberated the fate of a man named Anthony Pardon. He is a convicted murderer. His defense team tried to spare his life and did. The jury sentenced him to life without parole. Also, there is a press conference here at the State House about abolishing the death penalty, repealing the death penalty in Ohio. And it's an effort spearheaded by a group called Conservatives Concerned About the Death Penalty. Their leader is Hannah Cox. She came to our studio this week for an exclusive interview on why they believe their message will resonate here with you. We're really not getting anything for this. We're risking innocent life. We're wasting millions and millions of dollars. We're not solving more crimes. We're not spending money on programs that actually could work to deter crime. And so I think people are ready to give up on it. They recognize that it's broken. It hasn't worked. It's never worked. It's time to try something new. Representative, won't you start us off here? Is it time to try something new when it comes to the death penalty in Ohio? Well, it's definitely time for us to start looking at something new, something different. Um, I know this year we passed House Bill uh, 136, uh, to address some issues in the death penalty where people with severe persistent mental illness like schizophrenia could not be, or we would prohibit the death penalty for those individuals. But we need to take it further and we need to look at it and, and debate it 
and I think that's what's going on right now. Mm. Speaker Householder Joe has seemed to maybe indicate there's a, maybe an opening there because he's talked about the practicality of it right. and the expense. Of right. It. We have the, uh, the execution drugs. We can't get them and use them right now. We have a governor that said that he's not particularly comfortable with the structure of it being used right now. We have um, all of the problems that have been brought out, you know, in the last few years with um, equal justice. You know, does a person who's in a wealthy county that can afford to go and prosecute the death penalty, does that person, you know, an equal criminal in another county, uh, would maybe they get off because that county can't afford it. Okay. There's a lot of economic things that go into this discussion. And I think when you take it all in total, we have more and more uh, people who are uh, really fiscally minded on that point of it, saying, hey, wait a minute, we're spending all this money to prosecute people in a, in a system that they feel is broken. Mm -hmm. Matt, yeah, what do you think? Joe makes a great point about the application of the death penalty. I mean, we can talk a lot about the legality and the Supreme Court decisions that have upheld the, the, the state's abilities to, to carry it out and the federal government's ability to carry out executions. But unfortunately, the application of it has been very skewed, especially toward people uh, of color and minor minorities. Um, and so, so the system is broken. It's tough to be a defender of the death penalty these days. And as a, as a conservative and a Catholic, it is the correct pro-life decision. Um, I, obviously, there are heinous crimes that are sure. committed that sure. people want the ultimate penalty for. Uh, and those things are considered and, and are still part of uh, our state statute and, and almost every state statute now. Um, but the idea that those folks could just be incarcerated for life without the possibility of, par of parole could be seen as punishment enough in even some of the most heinous of crimes mm -hmm. and cases. And Ron O'Brien said that very thing when the jury made its decision regarding Anthony Pardon. He said, you know what, he will have the rest of his life to think about what he's done. Hannah? And, you know, Scott, uh, Policy Matters hasn't written on this particular issue, but as I shared last time I was on the show, you know, I was personally impacted by one of those heinous crimes. You know, um, I shared that I lost my father in a workplace shooting. Well, the perpetrator of that crime was sentenced to death in Kentucky. Um, and, you know, I think that the hesitation around this question, because when we look at the, the facts of it, it doesn't make sense to pursue this. I think the hesitation is, well, what is, where is the victim voice? And, well, the victim voice is not a monolith. Hmm. You know, I, I oppose the death penalty, even though I experienced that in my life. My mother had a very different idea on that. Mm -hmm. So victim voice isn't a monolith. And since this is a public question, pulling back, looking at the fact that this is often implemented in a very unjust way, mm -hmm. uh, that it is costly without any real uh, improvement in public safety, I think the answer only points to there's only one answer we can mm -hmm. get from that. Well, what happens also when you look at the number of individuals that we're finding that has been exonerated? Mm -hmm. You know, and has mm -hmm. been on a death row, and now they're they're freed. You cannot uh, escape the fact that there have been uh, people who have had execution dates in, during Governor DeWine's term. They've all been put off. Right. They've all been put back. Uh, Governor DeWine is a devout Catholic. We all know that. Um, he has, you know, expressed concern over. You know, he thinks that the way that it's structured now, the way that we're applying it, there are some serious questions about 
if, if it's, you know, really morally right. right. And I think he's there, you know, in his mind, um, it certainly sends that signal that he's thinking about this. And, and, you know, it's something that he really wants to take a good mm. look at. That's the other thing, too, when you look at the, the cost of it. I looked at four different studies preparing for today, and I thought going in, well, maybe it is more expensive to keep somebody in prison longer without parole. But it's not. It costs a whole lot more when you talk about trials and right. lawyers that are involved in the appeals right. process. And well, getting and new problems, just getting and securing the drugs to do the execution right. mm-hmm. uh, is raising all new levels of cost and concerns. I think that's going to only increase in time. And so I think that's why we're starting to see this coalescence around the, the conclusion that it's time to, to let this this penalty go. Yeah. Matt, I saw you nodding your head. Well, earlier. I mean, I think one thing people do find frustrating is that the law is still on the books. And so the laws that are on the books mm-hmm. should be applied uh, in appropriate cases uh, until that law is changed. I mean, we have seen examples. I know down in Hamilton County there's uh, a, a candidate running for prosecutor who's saying he's never going to pursue the death penalty. Well, that's not what the law mm-hmm. would require of him. Um, and un- un- until that were to change, um, I think there's a, a discussion that's happening at the state level now. And as you indicated, Speaker Householder is open to a, a willingness to discuss it in, a- in broader terms. That's a discussion that obviously should be had because it's a, a matter of critical importance mm-hmm. and one that is rare these days where you might be able to find some common ground between Democrats and Republicans. Well, too, and getting to the sentiment of Americans. I looked back at Gallup research going back to the 70s, and it's been pretty consistent. Somewhere between 45 to 55 percent of the American electorate still supports the death penalty. And again, that's been uh, consistent for 40 or so years. Uh, Let me take a quick break, and then our discussion will continue on the other side of a commercial. We'll talk about early voting in Ohio. The issues straight from the hearts and minds of you and your neighbors who could decide the 2020 election. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. Coming up in about 14 minutes, Dwayne Casares, CEO of Directions for Youth and Families. But now back to Scott Light, courtesy of 10TV. There is an effort to completely overhaul the voucher system in Ohio and make eligibility based on family income only. Joe Ingalls is back with us, veteran journalist for the State House News Bureau. You've been covering this. Changes to EdChoice vouchers delayed in the Ohio House. So you've got parents, you've got educators, well, and even school districts going, what's happening here? And you've got Republicans against Republicans because the Republicans in the House do not agree with the Republicans in the Senate. And both uh, are controlled by Republicans. So, you know, that's where the real getcha is because they are debating over whether the vouchers should be to everyone or whether they should be to people based on need. And um, there, the bill that's passed in the House is more of a need-based bill, and the Senate wants wants it to be expanded more to people. You know, the, the Senate makes a lot of people are hearing from some of these these parents who have been in a school district that was on the list where they thought their kid could get a voucher next year to go to school. And these kids have enrolled in the public schools now with the intent of getting a voucher. And it kind of feels like a bait and switch to some of these parents. And that's why they've filed, some parents have filed lawsuit against the state over this very issue because they feel like 
the legislature is trying to withdraw from them something that was promised. State Representative Thomas West, a Democrat from the 49th District. Are you hearing from your constituents on this? Oh, yeah, I think everyone is hearing yeah. from our constituents. Uh, and on both sides of the uh, equation, you have individuals that are supportive of private schools and getting those slots. Uh, but then you also have those mothers that are low income who want their children to go have a better opportunity or a different school where they think it's a better opportunity. Um, but I think one of the major things in this whole issue um, is those low-income individuals going to private schools, um, will they be accepted? I mean, are we looking at behaviors? And the other piece of it for me is you got... Um, you got individuals that will go to these schools and they may not even get accepted because they don't have the same standards. And that's something that I, I don't think we've talked enough about mm. uh, when it comes down to the voucher issue. Okay. Hannah Halbert, Executive Director of Policy Matters Ohio. Anna, Hannah, how do you feel well, about vouchers? Well, you know, um, I think something that gets lost in this debate between do we do it this way or that way is whether we should be doing this at all. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, I think we do need to question this premise that this is the way to fix a problem with how we fund our public schools. You know, if we have a system that is putting uh, kids who happen to be born in poorer areas at a real disadvantage. Right. And so, you know, what we're doing to answer that call is directing public dollars from those schools that are struggling into a private system. Right. And that fundamental premise, I think, isn't quite showing up in this debate of uh, do we do this by need or do we do this by uh, uh, scoring and quality of mm -hmm. the schools. And that's something I would like to hear more of from both of those camps mm -hmm. is how do we fix the, the bigger picture. Matt Borges, he has been in politics and campaigns for decades. Matt. Well, and that really is the underlying point here, as Joe pointed out. Um, what we're discussing right now is not whether or not to have school choice in Ohio. We have school choice in Ohio, and school choice in Ohio isn't going away anytime soon. And I'm glad that we have school choice in Ohio. It has been a successful program. It has allowed for many families to choose their own path and, and chart their own course of their children's education, which we, many of us believe, Republicans believe, um, is a choice that should be left to the parents, not necessarily to the government. And so what we're really talking about now is what are the criteria that are going to determine what families, what children will qualify mm -hmm. for the vouchers to be able to go to a, to a different school. And that's a discussion that's happening at the State House now, and I expect, you know, by the their self-imposed deadline here, <laughs> yeah. um, the end of 1st. April, uh, or beginning of April, yeah. they will, uh, they'll have a solution moving forward and, and we'll continue to have school choice in Ohio, which overall has been a very good thing. Make a little transition here, a little left turn here to talk about early voting leading up to our primary. There's still a few weeks away. CBS, uh, the folks from our network came to Ohio, went all around the state, well, and came out and talked to you, a bunch of voters. Let's hear from you. Before Trump, you know, I'm not ashamed to admit it, I had to get food stamps and stuff. Mm -hmm. And after, you know, I got a job. Do you credit the president for the fact that you were able to find work? Yeah, he kind of motivated me. It doesn't even matter about the economy. I feel like he's going to put us in a world war. No, that's the opposite. It was just very eye-opening for me to see what a minor medical event can cost you if you don't have insurance, let alone, I mean, I spent several thousand dollars out of pocket with great health insurance. I listened to every single one of those sound bites that CBS did, and... I got the sense that there are really very few undecided 
voters out there. Matt, you've run campaigns. You've gotten into the minds of voters out there. Are, are a lot of people who say they're independents, are they really hidden partisans? No, yeah, of course. <laughs> I mean, I think it, and, and, and the underlying data has demonstrated that now for a very long time. Um, there, there are, of course, still persuadable voters, and there are actual independents out there. I'm not suggesting that they don't exist, um, but they may be more <laughs> rare. Sometimes you see these big numbers uh, of independents that are supposedly included in polling and whatnot, um, and I'm not really sure that they're as big as they say they are. Of course, I always like to point out that thanks to Republican leadership, we have early voting in Ohio. Remember, every single Democrat in the legislature voted against the creation of early voting when it was uh, created a number of years ago. And so uh, because of the leadership, and I know uh, our Secretary of State, Frank LaRose, was in uh, the uh, the other day in your studio reminding people of what was the last day for registration to vote Mm -hmm. in this upcoming primary. You know, I I think a lot of the people who are really enthused right now are already strongly in a camp. So they wanted to get out there and vote before, you know, just get it off their chest and hmm. do it now. Okay. But uh, it, we'll have to wait and see what the turnout is because there's a lot of time left here. Yeah, if we could all figure out <laughs> the minds of voters, we would all probably be pretty rich. Yeah. yeah. Hannah? Yeah, you know, I think people are hearing a lot of kitchen table issues being discussed, and I think that makes people more motivated to get out there and uh Uh, cast their vote. We're hearing uh, the candidates talk about income inequality, uh, wage stagnation, health care, things that really do matter to people. And I think that's showing up in people coming out to early vote in the kind of enthusiasm that we're seeing. Um, And, you know, I I think that making the voting process easier so that there is uh, automatic voter registration. We saw just this week that Mm -hmm. there's a ballot initiative to expand that or make that happen in Ohio that cleared the AG's office. Mm -hmm. You know, those are all good things. Like, we should figure out how people can get to the ballot, that our systems are safe and secure, and that uh, the issues that are being raised, as long as they're connecting with people, people are going to turn out. Okay. Representative? Well, and I was just going to say, just to duck off what he said, Republicans may have started, but they've been trying to squash it and limit it uh, as much as possible. We need to expand voting opportunities for all, and Democrats have always been supportive of that. We've got to continue to do that. And I, But early voting, I'm, I'm a little concerned that uh, people don't know where they're at right now with who they're going with because obviously you see the debates that are going on and now Bloomberg rising and some of these other people. So you don't know what camp you're going to jump in. Record, uh, record numbers of voters uh, voted in Ohio in the 2016 election. And actually we've seen an uptick in the, the first few days of early voting mm-hmm. in Ohio. Um, so, so those numbers have actually gone yeah. up. So the opportunity to vote for Ohioans is certainly there, and uh, I'm glad that uh, many, many people are taking the opportunity mm-hmm. to do that. Yeah, and I'm glad that Frank LaRose also has jumped on board and talked about early voting and wanting to get people get it just right versus mm-hmm. purging. So that's very important. No question. You mentioned Bloomberg. The attacks on Mike Bloomberg came hard and fast. They're on stage. Democrats take a huge risk if we just substitute one arrogant billionaire for another. We shouldn't have to choose between one candidate who wants to burn this party down and another candidate who wants to buy this party out. Mr. Bloomberg had policies in New York City of stop and frisk which went after African-American and Latino people in an outrageous way. Just a couple of the comments from the Democratic debate in Las Vegas. And the consensus was that former Mayor Mike Bloomberg bombed. 
All right, let me go around the table here and ask the group what they thought about this. Hannah, why don't you start us off this time around? Well, there was real vetting happening on the <laughs> stage. I think that was possibly the more exciting of the debates so far, and that, that's good. We want that to happen, I think. We want to try these folks and, and have their records tried and their policies tried on a national stage. But he did himself no favors. I think he tried to defend some pretty indefensible positions that he held, and it just didn't come off uh, well. It didn't come off as authentic. Um, and I think the real question is going to be, can billions buy you your way out of a, a bad performance hmm. going forward? Matt, is there a Bloomberg debate coach now looking for work after this week. I know some very good ones. Scott, <laughs> Scott I, I mentioned uh, before we came on the air, I'm watching what's happening to the Democrats in this primary this year. Is it, is it a direct parallel to what happened to Republicans four years ago? Many of us believed that what was happening, I included, what was happening right in front of our eyes was somehow not really going to happen, not really happening, and that Donald Trump would never become our nominee Bernie Sanders is the front runner. He is very likely going to be the nominee of the party. That, uh, that prospect frightens me. And what frightens me even more is that it should not be discounted that if he becomes the nominee of the party that he could actually win. So folks need to wake up, decide whether or not they want to really go down this path and mobilize to do everything we can to stop that, in my opinion. Um, because it's a very scary problem. Well, you're more sanguine about that than Democrats are because they're wringing their hands over Bernie possibly being the nominee. Again, what was happening to Republicans four years ago on the, almost on this very day, maybe on this very set, <laughs> we were saying the exact same things mm. about our prospects if we were, as Lindsey Graham said, dumb enough to choose Donald Trump yeah, as right. our nominee. Yeah. But let's ask the gentleman who has a D after a his D, name. Yes, Democrat. Can Bernie Sanders... Does he concern you if he's the nominee in a national election? Well, I would say that um, does he concern me? Mm -hmm. I think we have six great candidates out there, and any of those candidates will be better than what we currently have. Can Bernie win a national election, though? I, I, I would have to say yes. Okay. Um, I would have to say yes. Um, now, do I believe that he will be our front runner? Uh, I'm not there yet. Bernie Sanders seems to have a very high floor and a very low ceiling because he's got people who are very, um, right now they're very excited, they're voting for him, there's a constituency out there that's, that really is feeling the burn right now. But that group of people, they're so far behind him, but when you start getting into, well, is he your second choice or your third choice if you don't get the person you want, he's very few second choice. Right. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. um, that's that's a problem right there. I think another thing with Bernie Sanders is that people don't understand. Um, they, they see him as a socialist. He keeps trying to define himself as a democratic socialist. Right. And I think people don't understand what he means by that. They're going to ha he's got he's got a lot of explaining to do to get to a, a victory. Not saying he couldn't, mm -hmm. but he's got a lot of explaining to do because people just don't, um, you know, are not there yet. And they see a lot of options. And I think, you know, we know in Ohio that the more centrist candidates in the Democratic Party are usually more successful. My takeaway is if you're going to invite somebody to a political street fight, Elizabeth Warren brings guns, knives, <laughs> shits, nunchucks, <laughs> flying stars, hand grenades. My and goodness, she did. did she just... We tried run. everything yeah. well, we think smart. of in, yeah. in 2016, and it didn't matter because the person who was generating the most energy and enthusiasm... Yeah ended up being the nominee, and that's what's happening in the Democrats' uh, race right now. This has been a good discussion. Thank you all for coming in this Sunday morning.
That's again Scott Light, courtesy of 10TV from his Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10TV. If you came across a child struggling with hunger, how would you recognize them? By their clothes. Their age. Where they speak. Hunger can be hard to recognize. Learn why at IamHungerInAmerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America. 200 food banks strong. To protect his home and family from disaster, Steve used courage, wisdom, and his camera phone. That should do it. Way to go, Steve. By simply taking digital pictures of his family's important documents, Steve can always have them stored safely online, no matter when disaster strikes. Learn other simple ways to protect your home and family before a natural disaster at ready.gov. That's ready.gov. A message from FEMA and the Ad Council. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me in the studio for the second time of 2020. What? Behold. (laughs) Man. It's going to be my new greeting. (laughs) It's Dwayne Casares. He's the CEO of Directions for Youth and Families. How are you doing, Dwayne? I'm doing good, Dave. How are you? I'm good. Uh, Tell us again for the thousandth time. What Directions for Youth and Families is. We're a uh, private nonprofit social service agency. We... um, Work primarily with kids and their families in the community, serve about 6,000 in the uh, Franklin County area, have over 70 licensed therapists that do outreach work. It's a unique feature of our agency as all of our therapy is done in the homes, in the schools, in the community, so it's not office space. Uh, we also have two after-school centers, our Howe Avenue Center and our Crittenden Center that has after-school programming and summer programming. Once the weather starts to warm up, which I understand starting into next week, it's going to be a lot of 50s in temperatures. Kids' attitudes change. Family structures get better at all when when the mine shifts. does because golf season starts. So, but outside of that, oh yeah, the kids and families. Yeah. I don't think we were talking about you. Oh, okay. Well, good. That's a great. That's going to go right into today. what we're going to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I just think it just opens things up for people to get outside and stuff. You get steer crazy. It's you know, I grew up in a family of eight people, and um, boy. When you're locked inside a house through the winter, hard winters, although this has been a pretty mild winter, so right. uh, it doesn't really change too much. But, you know, certainly it does just give you other options to do things, hanging out in a park and stuff like that, which just surroundings, uh, uh, the setting can change a person's right. mood. Uh, what do they call it? The Because of the dark? Uh, Seasonal affective disorder. Right. Yeah, sad. Is, that, is there um, validity to that? Yeah, you know, uh, but that's really something that's probably more diagnosed in adults than it is kids. Um, for the most part, there's a lot of things that you don't really want to put on a kid just because of their maturation process and their changes, uh, you know, cognitive, emotionally, behaviorally. You don't want to start to, to put certain labels on them because this could just be part of the transition uh, of just what they're going through physically and um, emotionally, behaviorally. Um, but certainly for adults, that's a big problem. They have all kinds of lights and stuff now that you can uh, mm-hmm. that's um, right. do to address those types of things. When Dwayne comes in, we talk about something, and we were going to talk about humble bragging because I had mentioned that term before we rolled tape. Yeah, it's just funny. It's just I had not heard of that term before, and I thought I heard of all the terms. <laughs> I, I'm always very surprised when you so, know something that I don't, Dave. Yeah, well, um, yeah. Is that humble bragging? No, I'm not surprised that you're not surprised. Let's okay, put it that. is that what I am not? I am not either. 
<laughs> no, but I thought that that was an interesting term. And, and so it got us talking about humble braggers. And um, when you look at these things, that behavior pattern. So whenever we look at things, when I look at it as being dysfunctional, and dysfunctional doesn't necessarily have to mean that it turns into a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So there's always traits. So anytime that you look at at, at uh, many mental health things, um, there's traits. You don't have to meet all the, you got to meet a certain number of traits in order it to be diagnosed something. But um, that doesn't mean that if you only meet three and you need five, that doesn't mean that those three traits still aren't dysfunctional. Um, and, and we run into these things all the time. And um, I, I think it affects all of us differently. And we were just talking about you had heard somebody, they're a humble bragger. So it was a new term for me. And right. I, uh, it, and as an example, it might be if, if uh, the person is talking about a, a far-flung country that's in the news, the commenter will somehow work in that they've been there, mm-hmm. which is one way to stroke their ego. But then the way that they present it in a in a humble fashion to, like, present yourself in an appealing way that strokes yourself a second time. Right, right. And, you know, when, when you're talking about that, too, I think that that whole thing could even be in a continuum. When I look at what people post on social media— They'll say certain things like they'll, they'll show a video and say, I like this video because that's the kind of stuff that I do. Yeah, um, that, I, right. I'm that kind of person. Exactly. Right. Um, and it's uh, in fact, I even won an award for it. But yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. But that's, you know, <laughs> that's not important. Yeah, It's not important, but I, I did get an award for it. Yeah. You know, those these these are difficult folks to deal with. You know, one of the traits that I always look at is uh, I, 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 I shouldn't acknowledge this, but I was at a meeting recently and. Uh, a person who only spoke three times, and I bet you in that collective three times that they spoke during this two-hour meeting, might have been less than six minutes. And part of being a therapist at times, you know, you just pick up on traits, and I got to keep those in check because I want to be focused on the meeting. It's not that all therapists diagnose people. Don't freak out. We don't do that. We don't have the time for that. That's you do it work. me all the time. Well, oh, but that's required. Um but this person actually said the word I 32 times. So there's a joke at work because I went back to the office, and that helps me just not annoy me. But someone says, this is what you, you counted again. You counted. Sometimes I do count. Yeah. Um, if someone's going to say I 32 times, wow. Uh, and, and typically these folks aren't aware of it. But that is, like I think, a form of humble bragging. Right. Uh, um, uh, that's what they do. It always becomes about them. And whenever I hear someone do that, um, and in this setting it was um, odd because they were in service to others, it is an indicator that they're using that form to meet their own personal needs. Mm-hmm. And it really is not functional to meet your personal needs through professional forms. It's not. Um, um, I used to have a sign that said, it's called therapy, get some. And I had it outside my door. I don't anymore. Um, but that would be a card. I should get those cards made <laughs> and then hand them to people and then let them try to figure it out. Um, that would just be mean. I wouldn't do that. Is it a uh, is it an insecurity that that makes people do this? Is it uh, some kind of conditioning in their life that makes them that way? It's many things. It can be many different factors to it. It's a need for validation. So I will uh, uh, suggest that a lot of these these things come from being raised in an environment where your love was conditional. So when we talk about unconditional love, um, that means you don't have to perform at a certain level or, or to do something to get that love. Mm-hmm. Um, when we talk unconditional, it, it just means that you are, will always be loved. And particularly if you have parents who really operate from a conditional love standpoint, a lot of times parents do it because they really don't think about it or, or they no one really talks to them about it. But when it's conditional, that means that kid is then being conditioned to learn, I must achieve or I must, or I, 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 so you get it. 
in order to receive my parents' love. And if I do not achieve this certain level, get this certain kinds of grades, do not perform the sporting event at, at this level, then I they withdraw the love. Mm-hmm. That's the difference. Be And if your parents, the two people who brought you in the world, are be, supposed to be the ones who are easiest to love you, if they're making it conditional, what is the rest of the world going to do to me? So that's a very simple way uh, of kind of describing of how this manifests itself into a need for validation. Um, and, and in that validation, there's a false sense of acceptance. So if somebody becomes that way, though, and if, if as, as they move into adulthood, they do become one of these humble braggers or kind of mm-hmm. narcissistic or you know, yep. self-important. Right. Are they victims or should they at some point be able to recognize that in themselves and back down from it? You know, you can say that about all things, um, all right, but it's a difference between victims and survivors. Let's remember, many people are raised in the same environment and don't turn out that way. Mm-hmm. So when these manifest themselves into uh, uh, patterns that um, really are, are in their social, their, their, their uh, work environment, their, so if it starts to cross over in all domains, so it becomes a distinct pattern of that individual, that's where it starts to become dysfunctional. When you meet enough of those uh, traits, then... Uh, uh, there's a cluster B of personality disorders, which is borderline and narcissistic and dependent and histrionic. So you just said um, uh, narcissistic. You weren't saying it in a clinical term, but mm-hmm. um, just in, in a, a layperson's term. Um, yeah, they can manifest themselves into that. And so then that becomes the predominantly way that you interact with your external environment. Um, and it turns people off. I mean, it does. These one-uppers who always have to do that, if that's always the pattern, um, they're always needing the attention. Um, they don't like it when anybody else does. Actually, you will see their behavior change when they think somebody else is stealing the thunder from them in the room. Um, and, and then you start to see other parts of their behavior. And so this becomes dysfunctional. It is not an appropriate or healthy way uh, to interact with people in the external environment. Um, so then it is a disorder. And you've got to start to address it because then that starts tearing apart relationships. Talking with Dwayne Casara, CEO, Directions for Youth and Families. But backing up to childhood, if a kid isn't getting unconditional love, Mm -hmm. that's a pretty rough place to be. Yes, it is. But we have seen kids be resilient through all of that, that they're able to package that within uh, certain confines and move on beyond that. Um, We've seen kids being resilient through many things. So resilience is a big thing. Um, To be able to do that, to be able to adapt, to be able to cope, to be able to put things in a package and put them over here on this shelf so that you can move on with everything else. Uh, that's how people begin to thrive. I'm wondering if, you know, if you've got siblings, uh, two brothers that are close to the same age who are going through that situation, if they begin to rely on each other to kind of patch up what's wrong, and, is that a better outcome than maybe a kid oh, that grows certainly. up by and themselves? It doesn't even have to be siblings. Yeah. It could be a Sunday school teacher. It could be a teacher at school. Um, it could be a grandparent. It could be an aunt. It can be an uncle. To be able to have a positive influence of some type of mentor in your life who will end up contributing from a positive side and, and, and truly, in a sense, see your joy uh, um, and see the goodness and, and truly unconditionally accept you, all of these things contribute to our growth and development. Uh, one of the, it, it's like when I tell parents all the time, you know, look, half the game uh, is your, how you treat your child. The other half of it's the temperament they came with. And, and we can call it personality, you can call it whatever. It's the reason you can't raise the same kids, even if they're two years apart, or twins the same way if they have different temperaments. <laughs> right. Different temperaments require different modes of intervention. Mm-hmm. Some kids need uh, somebody who's got their thumb down on them all the, all, all the time. 
other kids can have somebody who's a permissive parent because they take care of business themselves. So you always have to adjust that according to that characteristic within each individual. And the environment, too, is, you know, it depends. We could be talking about passive aggressiveness Mm -hmm. in a a family that can mess a kid up. Right. Or we could talk be talking about domestic violence where you've talked in the past like that is like having a wild animal in the house. Right. A bear. And triggers them. Yeah. And, And and the the. Traumatic consequences on that have an awful lot of impact on brain development. Um, yeah, so these are huge things. It's uh, There's a full spectrum on all of those types of things. And you just have to, you know, that, that's why when you end up having treatment, it would be so easy if it's like, oh, okay, so you have anxiety, good, I know how to treat that. Um, all the plans have to be individualized because each individual comes with so many different traits and variables and strengths and limitations that you've got to find a plan that's going to address that for that individual. It's one of the dangers that we often have in this field when people have experienced something. So if I um, had had grown up in a sexually abused environment and I came out of it, I'm now a survivor, and now I want to go work with sexually abused, there can be a lot of danger in that um, just because now I know how I got out of it. Mm-hmm. I know how I, in a sense, healed myself. And now I know how to heal you. That can be so damaging because um, it, it isn't about you. It's about them. Uh, it's not to say that people who have had these experiences can't be, but they certainly have to pay great attention to boundaries, to transference issues. Uh, it, this is why we're not glorified bartenders. I mean, it's uh, no <laughs> right. offense to bartenders. I, I, I'm i just saying from a therapy standpoint, sure. that's, not, that's not what we're doing. That's not talking to people. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just not how it works. When uh, it, when we're talking about substance abuse, there are a lot of people in the substance abuse field who have come from being abusers. Yeah, you know, and, and part of that is that was really just the whole history of substance abuse. If you wanted to be a, uh, uh, 30 years ago, if you wanted to be a drug and alcohol counselor, all you had to do was attend AA for a couple of years. It, it, there really wasn't educational requirements. There weren't licensure requirements. Huh. Um there was like a checklist of things you had to fulfill, but certainly if you were now sober and you went through the process and were attending AA on a regular basis and had like a two years of meetings or something, you could get a certification. Hmm. Um, so that that really was the evolution of the field that has changed a lot now. There's many people now who are uh, uh, experts in the field of substance abuse who weren't uh, uh, substance abusers. Um, so that has changed, but that's really part of the culture of where that whole uh, 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 strain of mental health and addiction services came from. So with Directions for Youth and Families, you've got scores of counselors. Yes. Uh, do they kind of run the gamut in terms of their whether the, their experiences relate to what they deal with? Uh, yeah, yeah, we're not allowed to ask this during interview processes, <laughs> but I will tell you, um, Everybody, we, we have a, a, a two-week training process, and, and it's an educational process, too. Uh, we hit hard on boundaries. We hit hard on, on, on culture. We hit hard. We're, there's so many different parameters that we look at. Self-care is so important in the mental health field because of all that we deal with. You have to make sure that the boundaries are strong and intact. Boundaries are there not just to protect the people we serve. They're also there to protect uh, the worker. Um, So all these things are critical in the professional development. And not everyone's going to come in knowing all that. I think one of the challenges is we work in human services, so you're working with humans. Um, So that learning curve's got to be kind of quick because you don't want to do more damage than was there than when they walked in your door. Um, So it just becomes that much more important. But we have a variety of questions, so we can actually see what the person is like. A humble bragger would be identified actually very quickly, um, and they would not be invited back for a second interview. That's uh, 
That's a plus for us, I guess. Sure. Yeah, you don't want a whole lot of humble braggers in your... Uh... Now you're going to have everybody going back to the workplaces and counting how many times people said I in a conversation. Right. <laughs> you know, and there is a big difference between I or we. Mm-hmm. You know, are you sharing that with other people? Look, we are all products also of the people that surround us. No one ever achieves anything on their own. So when... When somebody achieves something, well, we did it. It is a group effort. It, it is all the people who have had an impact or influence um, in your life, whether it's personal or professional. Uh, and there's a big difference between the we and the I. Dwayne Casares, CEO, Directions for Youth and Families. If folks want info about your agency, Dwayne, what do they do? Well, I can call. <laughs> really, I do want to stress, don't go around counting how many people are saying. <laughs> just, well, just walk by them and go, uh. Helping us to feel neurotic more and more every week. Thanks, Dwayne. I've raised everyone's anxiety. Great. And now they're just going to be depressed from that. Um, Well, then you can call us for services at www.dfyf.org or call our intake department 614-294-2661. Not like generating our own business. That's right. Interesting way to do it. Yeah. Thanks, Dwayne. It's a new marketing strategy. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. Heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM. That's 1460 ESPN Columbus. And Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM. Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.